0: In 1745, a mysterious man, about 45, was arrested in London, charged with spying against the crown. He called himself the Count of Saint-Germain. And for the next several centuries, this man was present at every significant event in the world. Oddly, he's always recorded as being about the same age of 45, never seeming to age. Now, some speculate he walked alongside Christ during the crucifixion. Some maintains He still walks here today. He has many labels, which include the original vampire or the name Cartophilus, but for most commonly, simply the wandering Jew. Tonight, we share his story, an ancient one, with all of you. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. close minded we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door, The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway.
1: When Eric originally brought this topic up um, via text message, because last time we recorded, I didn't think, we we didn't have any ideas when we no. walked away.
0: And by the way, it's nice to get together in the recording studio again. It, it's been a hot it's minute. It's been a
1: little while, <laughs> which Eric was, you know, you were visiting family and I understand that. And I had to help my son get relocated to St. Louis for a little while. And so we, we had obligations. But we're back now. But when Eric originally brought this story to me, the first thing I said was, well, we can't call it the Wondering Jew. Right. My understanding was I thought that maybe that was offensive. Now, I've done a little research since then. And, you know, if you use Jew in the wrong context, it, it's, it's meant to be offensive. But Correct. I think in the, in the, well, our usage here when we talk about the Wondering Jew is we are identifying a man of Jewish faith and this is his story. And so I, my understanding, and I hope I don't offend anybody, is that we're not being offensive when we use that as That is not way. our intent whatsoever. The other part of it was I had never heard of this story, and I had no idea what Eric was talking about. And then I did all my research, and then I get here to record the episode, and Eric starts talking about the first vampire and the Count of St. Germain, (laughs) and he drew connections I didn't get to. So what we both bring to the table is wildly different today. And again, that's part of the fun
0: of this, because we do not share our research with one another until we gather around the table.
1: That's our gimmick. That's our shtick. That's what makes us different. So... Again, Eric's going to have, you know, his part, and I'm going to have my part, and I definitely dug deep into the history of this particular topic, which Eric's the history guy, so I don't know why I keep doing history on things.
0: We're like an old married couple. We're starting to trade (laughs) roles here, I think. (laughs) But yeah, I I did
1: find the story interesting once I started getting into it, and it all starts basically with a man who heckled Jesus at the crucifixion. Now, uh, you know... A lot of people draw comparisons to the story of Cain and Abel here. Uh, I found that a lot in my research. When Cain killed his brother Abel, he was stricken with a curse, and his mouth would be filled with ashes and, and, and mm-hmm. other things. Uh, no man could cause him harm. There'd be a mark upon him. If you're familiar with the tabletop role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, Cain is the first vampire in that story. And the curse that he was cursed with was vampirism. Now, the story here of the Wandering Jew is that he... And I say heckled. I don't know if that'd be the right I word. Think
0: it in, I think it's just because I think his name was Cartophilus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I think it.
1: Cartophilus may have come later. Uh, again, there's a lot of names, and, I, and we're going to go into that. But sometimes he was said to be a shoemaker, sometimes he was a tradesman. One story relates that he was a doorman at the estate of Pontius Pilate. Mm-hmm, I heard so that. He's, one. he's been there in history. But according to some sources, the legend stems from Jesus' words given in Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the son of man coming into his kingdom, which basically there's someone here who is not going to die until I come back. And that would be
0: the, the man we're talking about today. And in some of those translations, just not trying to interrupt, but kind of in, interject here, there's some other translations that say, I go now to rest, but you, you shall never rest again until I return. And this all started to Bill's point of when he started heckling, we're going to use that word, heckling, I think it fits, when Jesus was dragging his cross through the street and had to stop for a moment and take a breath, and he basically said, you know, hey, you, pick up pick up the pace, move along, or something to that degree.
1: You know, there's another belief that, that he was a disciple whom Jesus loved that would not die, uh, that maybe possibly betrayed him. There's some, some connections here to Judas at the Last Supper and, and things like that. Uh, of course, in the early Christian world, this would be denounced in the Gospel of John. And I'm going to read here, John 21, 20 through 23. And Peter, turning about, seeth the, the disciple following whom Jesus loved, who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and had said, Lord, which is he who betrayeth thee? And therefore Peter saw him. He said to Jesus, Lord, and what shall he do? Jesus saith to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then this saying went forth among the brethren, that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus had not said to him, he who would not die, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Basically, if this guy lives until I come back, it's not your business. And this, this quote seems to be in reference to Judas, who you know, would betray Jesus.
0: And so either way, it would be, correct me if I'm wrong, a curse that Jesus bestows upon and, this and man. Curse. For me, feels like the wrong it, it, word yeah, to it use. It seems a little dirty. It but, seems, uh,
1: it doesn't seem very Christian.
0: But in the Bible there were several curses. Yes.
1: Well, there's a lot of things in the Bible that were the, pretty the, pretty bad. The plagues yeah. and yeah, yeah. Another story does relate that uh there was a, a guard of the high priest who slapped Jesus. That's apparently in John eighteen. You know, but apparently that that servant he's also referenced later where he's punished for that. So he's probably not the same person who struck Jesus. But Again, we get into names. I think one of the earliest names given to this character was Malchus. He's one of the many names was given to the wonder in later legends.
0: Well, I'm going to go back just a little to kind of set this precedence. Of course, this is the time of the crucifixion of of Jesus Christ. Another key player here was Pilate. He was the governor of Judea at the time of the death of Christ. And... And one of the stories, as Bill mentions, Cartophilus is said to have been like a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper for Pilot during this time frame. So, and again, it depends on where your sources are at. He could have been a shoemaker, I believe, as Bill referenced. But he, he was a person of the people, at least to some degree. He kind of rubbed shoulders with uh, a, a wealthier people at that time frame, whether it had been Pilot or people that was purchasing wares that he made. But again, going back to Pilate, Pilate was in a very tough situation at this time because basically, Caesar, who Pilate worked for, he was kind of the middleman. They were getting a lot of complaints about this, this Jesus character that showed up. You know, I was like, we don't like this guy. You know, he's coming in, he's spreading a bunch of rumors, and we need to get rid of him. It goes along with something I've heard lately, and I kind of, I've been hearing it
1: a little bit over the years, but it's sort of this expression that every time someone comes to earth or, or walks among mankind, And talks about how we should love one another and not kill each other.
0: Yeah. We kill that person. We kill that person. Yes. Well, Pilate defended Jesus on multiple occasions. You know, they were saying, you need to basically get rid of this guy. So he called him in. He interviewed him. He talked to him one-on-one. He found that he had done nothing against the law, nothing wrong. Uh, So, again, that kind of filtered back up to Caesar. Caesar came back, and the people, the majority of the people, were still upset. Pilate brought him in and whipped and lashed Jesus. And he said, Okay, there, there, I've done this. You know, is that good enough? No. I told you, we don't like him. We don't want, we don't like his kind. Get him out of here. So then at that point, you know, if you're familiar with Christianity and the Bible in particular, that is the point where basically Pilate said, You know, do with him what you wish, but it's not going to be on me. You know, the blood is not going to be on my hands. It's, that way it's not going to be on my shoulder. And obviously, they were so devout to crucify Jesus that. They took a known murderer and thief off, set him free just to make a spot for Jesus, and then we have Cartophilus, what name ever you want to use, and he's out here in the street heckling this time frame when Jesus is dragging this big, heavy cross that he's going to be crucified on, which by all description sounds like it would have been you know eight, nine foot tall, huge hewn beams, almost you know reminiscent of like railroad tie sized lumber. And Jesus stops for a moment to rest, and, you know, here comes the hackler, you know, move along, move along, you know, you're so strong, move, you know, get out of the way, and this is where the potential curse, I'll say, comes in, you know, and Jesus says his words to him, and depend on, again, where you get it from, but I go now to rest, but you, you shall never rest until I return. Now, from what I understand in my research, you know, Cartovilus, he didn't think a lot about this at the point, you know, the guy, you know, he threw some words back at me, no big deal. But then, it sounds like probably a decade or so in, he starts noticing he's not aging. The people around him are. Flash forward a few more decades, and he starts seeing his loved ones, his family members dying. And, you know, I'll try to put myself in his position. We all talk about immortality. And we might, he, he might have felt, hey, you know, this, this, this is really cool. I've got the power of, of immortality. But anybody that grew up in the '80s that watched the movie Highlander <laughs> with Queen and their song "Who Wants to Live Forever,"
1: it would it would be it would, a curse.
0: It would be an
1: absolute you curse. Would outlive anyone you ever knew, and okay, it, to draw a weird comparison, but you know you you hear about these guys in their 40s and 50s and they're, and they're going through their midlife crisis. You know they pick up an 18, 19 year old girl, some college girl. You know it's legal, but it's weird. Let's be honest. Yeah. But I've always wondered. Like I've I've seen situations where that was a case. There there's actually, I I know of a couple where the guy is about fifty something years old and the woman's like twenty. And it's like you're what gonna have do to be you the have daughter. In common.
0: Yeah. What, what would could, you talk what could about? Could you possibly have? I mean, in common? even
1: even with that kind of age difference, you know, if you're fifty sixty years old, you you grew up in a time before like digital media, and you know you records and eight tracks and things like that, and then. You're dating someone who doesn't understand a world pre-internet. Like you have not. There's not enough in common. And now extend that out, and it's like, oh, I was at the crucifixion. You know, <laughs> like, what do you have in common with anybody after a certain amount of time?
0: But I mean, yeah, it's it would definitely be a curse. You know, maybe not having the wisdom yet. You you might think first that, wow, this is this is a gift. Now, what can I possibly do? And you could, you could, you could attain let's face it, knowledge and wisdom that no one else could. And that's where this story is going to take us, because if you are an immortal living back in the days of Christ and coming forward to even present day where there are still sightings of this man, you could have worked alongside greats, you know, da Vinci, artists, musicians, anywhere, and you could have firsthand accounts and information that would just awe-inspiring. But the lore says that approximately three hundred years after Jesus spoke those words to him there in the street, he fully got the understanding of the curse, and that he was meant to roam the earth essentially forever or until Jesus came come back. Now it's said at this point Cartophilus sought out a Christian monk where he begged for answers, and some say tried to repent and start to seek forgiveness. The story would definitely not end there. But according to that lore, Cartophilus stayed there in this monastery, which is very vague, but somewhere in that vicinity, for 1,000 years and repented. He studied the ways of Christianity, the teachings of Christ, and appears that tried to reinvent himself, ask for forgiveness, and try to make something of this curse.
1: Okay, so in that time frame, then, I have here that in the late... Sixth, early seventh century, there was a a monk named Johannes Moscos, and he recorded a an early version of of this what what he called a Malkian figure, which at that point in time, I believe, they were saying that the guy's name was Malchus. Okay, uh, and again, was, many
0: names float around here.
1: Yeah, we're going to use a different, a lot of different names for him, but but we'll we'll always try to we will at least make an effort to say, okay, this is another name for. So I think the name that we're agreeing on is Cartophilus. So this this Malchus. Uh, would be the same. In his writings, which were entitled the Limonarion, Moscos tells the story of meeting a monk named Isidore. And Isidore had allegedly met this uh a a Malchus type figure or or you know who we are calling Cartophilus, Cartophilus. and who had allegedly struck Christ and was punished to wander in the world forever in suffering and lament. And I'm going to quote here from the writings and and this is a translation I'm sure the original is probably lost to time. But, the, but that monk said, I saw an Ethiopian clad in rags who said to me, you and I are condemned to the same punishment. And I said to him, who are you? And the Ethiopian who had appeared to me replied, I am he who struck on the cheek the creator of the universe, our Lord Jesus Christ, at the time of the passion. That is why I said, Isidore, I cannot stop weeping. So you have this account. Like I said, this would have been in, in you know, the, the 500s and 600s mm-hmm. A.D., uh, of someone who had, you know, he, he met a man who claimed to have struck Jesus. And and again, there's there's a couple of different versions. One version says he struck Jesus. Another version is that he simply kind of harried him along on his path. And so.
0: again, you got to ask yourself, I mean, how many people at that precise time frame would have been around to heckle, slap, do something to Christ that he would have cursed? I mean, come on, it, you know, it's so we're going to say we're going to assume that that is the same person.
1: There's another written record in 1223 that has the very long title, and, and bear with me. I think this is, you know, this is, it looks like Italian maybe to me. The Ignoti Sister Sistaciensis S. Maria de Ferraria, Chronica et Ricarde de Sancto Germano, Chronica Priora.
0: I am so glad you got that, Bill, and I didn't.
1: I, I rolled right through that a lot better than I thought I it would roll right off the tongue. But this contains one of the first written accounts of the Wanderer, You know, barring the one above. Uh, And in an entry for the year 1223, he described the story of pilgrims who met a certain Jew in Armenia who had berated Jesus on his way to being crucified and who was then doomed to live until the second coming. Now, their story says that every 100 years, his age resets to that of 30. So he sort of rejuvenates.
0: Well, and I had read that at that point, you know, Let's face it, he's been around this long. You can't just keep living under the same name. You're going to raise suspicions even back in that time. Well, and and
1: age-wise, if you continued to age normally, eventually there wouldn't be. Yeah. uh, What is it? At 900 years, you become Yoda, right? So So. (laughs) you got to reinvent yourself, (laughs) rebirth yourself, whatever you want to call it. There's another version of the story that is related in the Flores Historarium by Roger of Wendover around the year 1228. And I think you had more on that.
0: Well, I had in 1228, very similar to the one that you just shared, this was a story that was kind of considered a myth or a legend, brought back from the great crusades of a cursed Jew. You know, all this stuff prior, that this was just myth and legends that the crusaders brought back. But then in 1228, I found an Armenian bishop, I believe that Bill had kind of even mentioned, recorded in his literary works, that he had sat down and had dinner with a man who claimed straight out to be, and he used the name, Cartophilus. He said he spoke to the Armenian bishop uh, of history so realistically and accurate that as if he was there. The Armenian bishop, of course, questioned him because, it, again, he was describing smells, sounds, and things that you normally do not have in you know, history books. And that's when he said, well, I am Cartophilus. I am the man that approached Jesus in the street. I was there.
1: Now, at, at that time, it's my understanding he was going by the name of Joseph. And I believe even the title of the, the book, the book says that, yeah, under the title of of the Jew, Joseph, who is still alive awaiting the last coming of Christ would be the title. And yeah, he talked to him and, and he said his name was Cartophilus. He was a Jewish shoemaker.
0: So essentially he's admitting there, I am Joseph, or Joseph today, I am really Cartophilus.
1: Um, now the name Cartophilus, well, we'll dig into that a little bit right here, can be divided into the words Kartos and philos from its original language, which can be roughly translated as dearly and loved. So that's connected to the legend of the disciple whom Jesus loved. and And, and I believe in this story, he did claim to be Pontius Pilate's doorkeeper and that he had struck Jesus on his way to Calvary and said to him while carrying his cross, go on quicker, Jesus, go on quicker. Why dost thou loiter? Which is sort of a variation of what you said earlier. Mm-hmm. And to which Jesus replied with a stern countenance, it is said, uh, that he replied along the lines of, I go, but thou shalt wait till I come. The bishop there, he, of course, he stated that Cartophilus had converted to Christianity and was baptized as Joseph and that he had spent his days wandering and proselytizing and, and leading a hermit's life. And, and that's just one story. Now. There are claims of sightings of, of the wonder throughout Europe that they, they continue on for years. I mean, all the way up until basically modern day. So the legend became more popular after it appeared in a 17th century pamphlet of four leaves, which, you know, a little fold over pages in the pamphlet, entitled Short Description and Tale of a Jew with the name Ahasuerus. So there's a, yet another name, this Ahasuerus. Again, I think we're going to go back to Cartophilus for most of this. So these names were not probably the ones used at the time, but for the simplicity and and for continuity's sake, we're going to keep using Cartophilus. But contained in that particular pamphlet was the story of Paul de Eitzen, a theologian and Catholic bishop who, while attending church in Hamburg in 1547, Paul noticed a man listening to the sermon and bowing with low, great humility at each mention of Jesus and described him as of tall stature with bare feet and long hair falling to his shoulders. So after the service, the approaches him, and the man tells him his name is Ahasveros. He was a shoemaker by trade. So we have the, the shoemaker mm-hmm. the trade there. And he lived in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. And he had stood in his doorway as Jesus passed by carrying the cross, and that he had mockingly told Jesus to hurry up and walk faster, whereupon Jesus said to him, I will stop here and rest, but you will keep walking until the last judgment. And in the millennium and a half since then, Ahasveros said he had wandered the world without dying, waiting for Jesus to come again. And de described Asvaros as follows, Quiet and reserved, he rarely talked except to answer questions put to him. When he was invited to a meal, he ate little and soberly. He was always in a hurry and never stayed in one place long. He was offered money, but he never accepted more than two groats, which he immediately gave to the poor, saying that God looked after him, that he had repented of his sin, and that God had pardoned him because it was committed in ignorance. He was never seen to laugh or smile. He could not bear to hear anyone blaspheme or swear by God's passion. At such times, he grew angry and morose. And, and because of this pamphlet, this legend quickly spread throughout Germany and, and Europe. Uh, there were eight different versions of the pamphlet appearing in 1602 alone. Another 40 altogether before the end of the 18th century. There were eight editions in Dutch and Flemish. And the story you know, grew and spread into France and England. It was translated into Danish
0: and Swedish. So this is really the first time that, I won't say it was in print, but was in print that was shared. And, and shared, yes. Public, uh, publicized. But apparently the pamphlets
1: borrowed parts of their description of the wonder from reports of a traveling p- preacher named Jürgen. Again, the description kind of varies, the names vary, but all these stories are cartophilus, this guy who, who struck Jesus, heckled Jesus on his way to the crucifixion.
0: Now, along that same time frame in my research, I found the first mentions of uh, some of these people who had come across Cartophilus, the wandering Jew, and they were stating that he was a very frail old man. You described him as tall nature, you know, skinny, didn't eat much. Yeah. But they described that in every motion, he would cry out in agony and pain. I'm assuming because of like, you know, arthritis and just, I mean, the dude's, 1,200 plus years old at this point. Well,
1: again, if he if he reverts to that 30 age, so maybe... Maybe this was at the tail end yeah, of... How, okay, so how old does he, how old, quote unquote, does he get before his age resets?
0: Yeah. And, and then I did also find mention here that it became a little bit more difficult to track down what we'll say old cartophilus, because I found here that every approximate, they said every generation, now that could be any number of years. Bill said maybe 40 some years, I'm going to say a a generation of 50 to 60 years, he would seek out a monastery and ask to be baptized, and upon his rebirth, would take on a new name, a new life under this new persona. And then at some point in time, we're going to bring in the next name, Count of St. Germain.
1: Well, speaking of names, I have a list here of names that have reportedly been given to the wonder over the years. And that includes Mattathias, Budadeus, and Isaac Liquetum. Uh The name Paul Moraine has been incorrectly attributed to The Wanderer by a 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica article. Uh, that is actually an anglicized version of the name Giovanni Paolo Morana, which was the alleged author of a, of, a, of a writing known as The Letters Ripped by a Turkish Spy. The name given to The Wanderer in the spy's letters is Meqab Ader. The name Deus, Budadeo in Italian, Budadeu in French, most likely has its origin in the combination of vulgar Latin of bature to beat or strike with the word of God, Deus. Uh, sometimes the name is misinterpreted as Vodadeo, which would mean devoted to God. Where German or Russian are spoke, emphasis has been given to the character and his punishment. And in those places, he's known as Iwiga Jude or Zid, or the Eternal Jew. In French and other Romance languages, the usage has been to refer to as Wanderings, uh, as in Les Juifs errant in French, Juidio Erante in Spanish, or Le Hebreo Erante in Italian. Uh, this has also been followed in English from the Middle Ages as the Wandering Jew. In Finnish, he is known as Jerusalemin Sutari, Shoemaker of Jerusalem. In Hungarian, he is Bolionzo Zido, the wandering Jew, with a connotation of aimlessness. Now, as early as the 17th century, the name Hasver has been given, apparently adapted from Hasuerus, Xerxes, the Persian king, who was not Jewish and whose name was used often as an example of a fool uh, amongst the Jewish people of the time. Uh, the name may have been chosen because the book of Esther described the Jewish people as a persecuted people scattered across the province of Esuerus' empire. So, A list of eyewitness sightings of the wandering Jew, and I'm just going to read some locations and some date here, but they include, of course, the crucifixion. Hamburg in 1542 and 1547. Spain in 1575. Vienna, 1599. Lübeck in 1601. Prague, 1602. Lübeck, 1603. Bavaria, 1604. Ypres in 1623. Brussels in 1640. Leipzig, 1642. Paris, 1644. Stamford 1658. Astrakhan 1672, I'm not sure how this is related, but Frankenstein in 1676, <laughs> Munich in 1721, Altback 1766, Brussels 1774, and Newcastle in 1790. This guy's getting around. The last mentioned appearance is in Hart's Corners, New Jersey in America in 1868, where he reportedly visited a Mormon named O'Grady, according to the Desert News, September 23rd, 1868.
0: All right, well, I'm going to go back and kind of fill in some of these, elaborate on some that Bill had mentioned. I found a few stories that in all my research, there was enough here of mention that I wanted to get a little detail. And I will say in doing the research, there are a lot of places, you know, where he showed up, but there's just not a lot, you know, that was there. He seemed to be, as I had said in the opening, he appears like at any major event, a war Almost there, uh, he is said to kind of be a peacemaker. He tries to get people to get along, to try to help, uh, which you know, kind of goes back to the story part of he's repented of his sins, and he's, he's trying to make something of himself, even under this curse of Christ. One in particular is in London, England, about 1745. During this time in England's grim history, the Jacobites and England were at war, there was an invasion people were being arrested simply by for being foreign I mean literally the prisons and jail cells were full beyond capacity. hundreds were being killed within only a few months just to clean out the the prisons and the jail cells i can't I can't believe that people would be persecuted simply by not being from a country by not being from the country exactly but now when this strange man was brought in for questioning, the count's captors were astonished to learn that now you're saying the count is. Are you attributing him to the
1: count of Saint Germain at Cancer this point?
0: Man, good point. Yes. So let's let's. I'm identifying yeah. him moving forward, at least on on my stories now, as he is going by the count of Saint Germain.
1: Now, for a little detail, I, I have previously heard of the count of Saint Germain. I did not find this equivalency, so I don't have a lot of detail on this. But apparently the Count of St. Germain is another immortal figure that, again, like Eric said, has been sort of present throughout history mm-hmm. at all these major historical events. Yes. So just to, to say that these, sto- these figures have a similar story, and, and I did not see it as, as coming together, at least not in the research I did, but apparently you you've, you've found that connection. On, on my
0: side, I truly believe St. Germain was Cartophilus, just reinvented, to each throne. But yes, for clarification, everything that I'm going to talk about is basically he is now going by the name, the Count of St. Germain. So basically prison cells are full, they're, they're killing people left and right because the jails are so full just by being foreign. But when this gentleman, the strange man was brought in, the, the Count's cha- uh, captors were astonished to learn that he was fluent in every European language, other languages from all around the world. Still, he would not tell them his age, and he would not tell them where he was born. His accents seemed to vary to such degree that even the most literate scholars of the time could not determine his origin. There was one gentleman, Horace Walpole. Now, that was the prime minister's son. He records in his journals the man calling himself the Count of Saint-Germain could sing and compose and play most any instrument so well that it would bring tears to the eyes of the most heartened that would listen. He believed he must certainly be some traveled and educated musician of great stature, but none recognized him, and no one knew anything about him. Even more unbelievable was this man's ability to speak of history, almost like it was from an eyewitness first-hand account, with details unknown or uncommonly known. When he was asked how he knew such details, he would smile and say simply, I was there. This obviously brought up a lot of speculation, a lot of ridicule, and beliefs that he was a charlatan, so that the most knowledgeable and well educated men of the area were brought in to interview the count, trying to trip him up, basically, if you will, in his storytelling. But they could not. Even when they left to review books and little known writings to clarify things that they thought he said wrong, they would be proven that he was telling the truth. Now, St. Germain's jailers found him quite odd, but yet interesting. He could not go anywhere without attracting a loyal following. It is said that outside of his jail cells, even the prison guards would just kind of lean up against the walls. Other prisoners would listen intently to his storytelling, almost as if they were charmed by his tongue. Now, within the year, uh, without question, the Count of St. Germain was released from prison just to go free. When the Prince of Wales heard the story of Saint-Germain, he was enamored and immediately sent for him, wanting to do some more research on this strange man that popped up in history. However, even the Prince and his stretch could not find Saint-Germain. He had once again vanished as mysteriously as he had appeared. Jump forward to France, uh, mid to late 1700s. A man appears in France from, again, nowhere. Dressed simply yet sophisticatedly in an all black outfit suit, he adorned every finger with lavish rings and jewels. He wore diamonds from head to toe, it was explained, and even had jewels on the buckles of his shoes and his belt. He appeared to be about 45 years old, and he called himself the Count of Saint Germain. Now, I believe the
1: Count of Saint Germain always appears to be about the
0: same age when people see him. 45 seems to be the the age. That kind of. You know, where with your story rides, the, the yeah, resetting. Was, yes. So, yeah, maybe something changed here. I don't know. Don't know. But when the Count of St. Germain arrived in Paris, he was obviously a man of significant means. He was very charismatic, leading people into conversations and then basically awestruck at his. Essentially, I'm going to describe him as the best storyteller of all times. While almost nothing was known of him, he became the most sought-after guest to invite to every social promenade and event. Not only would he entertain your social gathering with stories, but he played the piano, recited poetry, and is said to have played the violin so magnificently that often the ladies would pass out and the men, the hardened men, would cry to tears and drop to their knees from hearing his music. Some speculated he must surely have trained alongside the great musicians of the time. He could mix and mingle with ease no matter what the nationality, as the Count of St. Germain could fluently speak French, English, Dutch, Russian, German, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Polish, Greek, Sanskrit, Chinese, ancient Greek, Arabic, and even Latin, and Each of those
1: languages, most of those languages were mentioned in the different places where he, the cartophilus was allegedly cited. Yes. Just about. I mean, Portuguese and and Chinese notwithstanding. So, again, these were places where he was allegedly, supposedly
0: cited. And anytime he was questioned, his answer was, I was there. He seemed well-educated to speak on any subject of the music, the arts, politics, science, philosophy, that he aspired to to one above all, and that is history. He told stories about famous people in history as if he was there with them, such as King Henry VIII, Neo, Cleopatra, and other historical figures. Often, he already touched upon, he would be asked, how do you know these things? And he would boldly report, without cantor, because I was there. He at this time could even boast that he knew Jesus Christ himself and that he had spoken to him on a few occasions. This would mean that he would be well over 12 1,400 years plus old. So many begin to shun him with disbelief. Now it seems St. Germain spent a few years there in the Paris area, long enough to share some other skills he stated to have learned with his long life, including alchemy. For you see, the Count of St. Germain, or Cartophilus, stated he had even created the Philosopher's Stone, which we will address in another upcoming podcast episode. But in simplest of definitions, the Philosopher's Stone turned any metal it touched into gold. He went on to boast that while it took him several decades to create, he also created an elixir of life, impressing even the famous Voltaire of the time these recordings seem to add even more defining facts to possibly how this man could have lived over a thousand years. Sounds pretty hard to believe, right? I mean, come on. Most of this information is only collected by firsthand stories and as it is recorded. For someone to say, you know, to to come forward, everyone's dead and gone. There's nobody that could identify him. For for some to believe such tales and the meanderings of this old man, it was going to take something much more from that it was going to take someone that could identify him. And thank goodness there was just that person. On one evening, the Count of Saint-Germain was mingling with the high elite class in Paris, and there came a call from an aged Countess von Gregory from across the room. She believed she recognized the man from a meeting in Venice in 1710, about 50 years prior. The Countess asked Saint-Germain, if possibly he had a father or a grandfather living in Venice or staying there at that time, seeming a bit confused herself. He addressed her with a curtsy bow holding her hand and simply said, Alas, it was I that courted you then. The countess stated to the elite who gathered now around them, I swear to you this man was about 45 years in 1710 and today the same age, or to Bill's point, if anything, possibly a bit younger. He addressed her once again, Madam, I am very old. And to help prove this case, he began to describe to her things of that evening in 1710, 50 years prior, down to the details of the food and drink that was served, the conversations and side discussions that were held only known by a handful she blushed and nearly passed out hearing these private matters. Now this story made its way back to King Louis at the time, who found them very intriguing, yet did not pay them a tremendous amount of concern. But that was until in later months he heard that this strange man had demonstrated his adept skills of removing flaws and cracks from jewels and in particular, diamonds. Over time, He also learned that this man possessed something to be able to turn metal into gold. What king would not be interested in such a catch? It was at this time King Louis immediately sent out for the Count of Saint-Germain and invited him to the palace of Versailles, to which Saint-Germain eagerly accepted. When he arrived, he was an instant hit. He found favor with the king as well as many of the others. Casanova himself writes of his own encounter with Saint-Germain. He quotes, he was a scholar, a linguist, musician, and a chemist, and as a conversationalist, he could not be equaled. Casanova went on later in remembering that he had never seen St. Germain actually eat or drink at any event, with the exception of a little bit of mineral water or a sip of herbal tea. Now, during his visit, St. Germain brought with him cases and vials and elixirs and potions and stones, and supplies of all manners that he used for his alchemy. He was noted to have made makeup for the ladies of the court, whom all swore made them look younger, much like the chemist's creator himself. He offered the king a new discovery that he had just made, to permanently dye fabrics and silks at the time with a new bold colors that would never wash out or fade. But these were not the gifts the king desired. He wanted to know more about the Count's abilities with precious stones and gold. The Count explained to the king he had spent the last five years prior to staying with that of the Shah of Persia, where he was shared sacred knowledge and teachings to mend gemstones, removing fractures, cracks, and blemishes, as well as melting down small gemstones together to make one larger gemstone or even growing gems from scratch, which we all know today is commonly done. Many gemstones are grown in the lab. The king seemed to scoff at the count's bragging. However, the count replies, Your majesty, I have witnessed Christ turn water into wine. Diamonds are a bit trifle. King Louis, intrigued, proposed a test. He had his men bring him a diamond that was valued at 6,000 francs, one with blemishes and cracks. Now, the king's gemologist told him that without these inclusions, that the gem would surely be worth 9,000 to 10,000 more. So the king proposed the test and give this gemstone to the Count of St. Germain. He eagerly took it and said, King, I promise I will return within a month and I will bring you this exact gem without the flaws and blemishes And which he did. King Louis's gem experts examined the returned Diamond, for some time, not finding any sign of any flaw, and now valued it at nearly 10,000 francs in its restored condition. The king was so impressed, to say the least. He immediately granted Saint-Germain his own building, equipment, as well as servants, and set up his own laboratory on site. For the next several years, the Count of Saint-Germain was a permanent fixture at the Palace of Versailles. Spending every day toiling in his private labs and every evening mixing and mingling with the ladies of the court. Until one day, when King Louis went to see his friend, the Count, only yet again to find he had vanished without a trace. Now he disappears, reappears several times. During the late 1700s, after disappearing from King Louis in the uh, Palace of Versailles, he would reappear all across the area. He was seen by Sir Robert Clive in India. He was said to be present at the at the Hogue, trying to broker peace between Prussia and Austria, most noticeably to a man by the name of Anton Mesmer, namesake relations to the creator of Mesmerizing, while he was a young uh, physicist in Germany. Mesmer dictated that the Count of St. Germain was most knowledgeable in the mind and human brain, stating he had vast understanding of both, Mesmer gives actual credit to St. Germain for teaching him the art of mesmerizing from where one enters almost a hypnotic trance and with the powers of suggestion. Now, In the opening, I had mentioned the first vampire myth, lore and legend, and it goes without saying that this tale seems to pop up from time to time, each claiming different origins. However, that is one of the ones that drew me to this as a podcast episode. And with a little bit of an open mind, I, I think you can understand. Number one, vampires are immortal, i.e. the elixir of life, alchemists, the teachings. We have uh, Saint Germain, who is an immortal. Number two, vampires seek blood to help preserve and feed them. Blood is considered essential and, as some believe, helps maintain healing and even youth. To an alchemist, blood is the foundation of many things. Number three, vampires cannot go into the sunlight. Jesus, as we know, suffered on the cross as he hung there for several days and eventually died at sunrise which you see in all the movies and everything, that at, at sunrise the vampires cannot handle that. Number four, silver can harm vampires. It is said in lore that Cartophilus and even Judas of Iscariot both possibly took silver coins as bribes and payment for turning on Jesus, uh, having now uh, a negative effect upon them. Number five, mesmerizing or charms, a power that vampires are said to possess to enable them to bend the will of man or woman. And, you know, I talked about this with his ability, his his charismatic charm to be able to lure people into conversations, getting them to believe him. Now, more sightings on into the late 1700s. The Count was in Russia. It is said that he helped bring Catherine the Great to the throne. He was in Holland to help end the Seven-Year War. Uh, He even returned to the aging uh, Casanova in Paris years later, where according to Casanova's own memoirs, the Count changed out a pocket coin that he was carrying into a solid gold token and gave it to him as a parting gift. In all of these many sightings, always the Count seemed to appear as a man in his 40s to 45 and never aging. Now, after the death of King Louis XV, the Count is said to have returned to the Palace of Versailles once again, where he warned King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette of the coming of the Revolution, and he warned them of a giant conspiracy that would disrupt the entire nation and that the king was in danger. Now, the young couple did dismiss his advice and future warning at the time. However, recorded in Marie Antoinette's own memoirs, she stated, she wishes they would have taken these warnings more seriously. Back in the summer of 1776, here in good old United States, the Second Continental Congress gathered in Philadelphia to sign the Declaration of Independence. But the meeting wasn't going so well, as some of our founding forefathers were very fearful of going to war with England, the most powerful country in the world. When a booming voice spoke up from the back of the room, giving an uplifting message of hope with courage, commitment, and freedom, so inspired by hearing these words, there was a rush from all around the room to jump into action, and they began to sign their names on the contract of treason with England. After the signing, several of the men sought and looked up, to try to thank the man for his words of wisdom. But alas, he was gone and vanished without a trace, even though the doors were guarded and locked with no one coming in or leaving during the time. 1779, the Count of St. Germain is said to have befriended Prince Charles of Germany. He spent the next five years as a guest there in the prince's castle. February 22nd, 1784, is a death of St. Germain, where it says he dies of pneumonia and was laid to rest at a local cemetery. His funeral services were said to be attended by many, all of them affected by the life in some way that the man had now finally passed away. However, in 1785, about one year, the Count of Saint-Germain was said to have been spotted with Anton Mesmer of Germany later that year, and also at the French uh, Freemasons had chosen as their representative, none other than, you guessed it, the Count of Saint-Germain. He was seen at the scene of the taking of Bastille in 1789, again on October 16, 1793, at the death sentence of Marie Antoinette. The list goes on and on. In 1914, the count is recorded to have been captured by two Bavarian soldiers during World War I. They stated he spoke many languages, but refused to tell them where he was from. He did, however, tell them that this war would end in four years by 1918. The soldiers thought he was crazy, but allowed him to ramble on. He then went on to warn them that while World War I would close, there would be a tyrant from the lower classes that would rise up beneath an ancient symbol and lead Germany into another global war in 1939. He said Germany would be defeated in six years, but not before they did despicable atrocities of violence to their fellow man. The soldiers were so terrified, in their demeanor and the words spoken that they released the man and told him to please leave. 1930, Guy Ballard is said to have met the Count of St. Germain on Mount Shasta in California. Ballard reported St. Germain was one of what he known as the Masters or the Old Masters, which he declared was descendants of Jesus Christ. These were also believed to be people from heaven or spirits from heaven, possibly even aliens or extraterrestrial godlike beings that come down to share knowledge with mankind in hopes to make this world a better place. Now, Guy Ballard was so taken by meeting St. Germain, he actually started his own religion based around his teachings. And at one time, this boasted over a million followers still active today. So judging by the, the audience that we have,
1: There's a good chance you may have even seen The Count of St. Germain, or at least according to podcast Astonishing Legends I used to listen to. Now, uh, Astonishing Legends does really deep dives on particular topics. They'll do multiple hour-long episodes about one specific topic, and they did cover The Count of St. Germain in an episode, and that was my first exposure to the story. What they noted was that a lot of people have pointed out that in paintings of The Count, the alleged Count, He bore a striking resemblance to comedian and actor Kevin Pollack, which, if you're not familiar, he was in Willow. He played one of the Brownies. Uh, He was also the only Brownie that came back for the Willow TV series, the short-lived. I think it was only a handful of episodes. You might have also seen him in A Few Good Men, The Usual Suspects, Grumpy Old Men. And he appears from time to time on the Comedy Central show Drunk History. And if you haven't watched that, I do recommend it. That is hilarious. very, Very funny. But... uh. Apparently, he bears a striking resemblance to the Count of Saint Germain in paintings, so much so that they were actually able to get him to come on an episode, where he denied, of course, being the Count of Saint Germain. If you were immortal, you wouldn't want to admit to it. But it, it was hey, kinda, yeah, that's me. And and again, he's a comedian, so keep in mind, you know, his response was sort of humorous, um, sort of implying by the end of the interview that you know maybe they even convinced him he might be the Count of Saint Germain. <laughs> so. So if you want to know what he looks like, there's a, good, uh, there, there's a good indicator of what he would have looked like. So was he, was Kevin Pollock, the Count of St. Germain or Kurtafelis or this historical, you know, immortal? I mean, I guess if you, you see a very young Kevin Pollock in the next hundred years. <laughs> yes. Could
0: so. be. <laughs> so there are so many other sightings before and after, usually just little tidbits in history uh, documentation. But we're left with these questions. Number one. Was the Count of St. Germain a real person? I have to say unequivocally, yes, absolutely. There are too many documented accounts for, A, Count of St. Germain not existing. Number two, was the Count of St. Germain immortal? Well, that one, that one we're going to leave up to you, our listeners. Is it time for headlines, Eric? It is time for headlines, Bill.
1: So from from one type of immortal to another, uh, I have my headline is from the Daily Star, September twenty second, two thousand twenty two, with the headline: Humans could become immortal thanks to a breakthrough in unique jellyfish science, by Adam K-Kaler, or Kyler, I'm not sure how you say that, uh, but the secret to immortality could be closer than we think. Uh, a team of scientists from the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of Oviedo in Spain have been studying one of the only creatures on the planet that comes as close as possible to being called immortal. And this is the jellyfish known as Turritopsis adorni, which has the ability to switch from adult back to larval stage. So it can just essentially reverse its aging, just start over. Very similar to cartophilus here. While not strictly unkillable, since it could contract disease or be eaten or destroyed in some way, it, it does retain the ability to reverse its aging and actually could choose to live for as long as it wanted to. Now, scientists have taken the immortal jellyfish and compared it to an almost exact cousin that lacks this immortality. And they have found and isolated that little part of the DNA code that allows it to to do this miraculous you know, resetting. On, on top of that, they've also been able to, to find parts of DNA that are similar to those in humans, and potentially integrate that little DNA code into human DNA.
0: Mad scientist laboratory here.
1: Could be potentially used to reverse aging or maybe even just cure diseases that we currently don't have any cures for.
0: That would be good stuff. Well, I wanted to uh, do my headlines on something that kind of bothered me as I was doing the research, I'll be straight up honest, but then when I mentioned the word of Jesus cursing, I noticed my counterpart, good friend Bill's eyebrow raised a little bit. And he kind of spasticed a little bit. Curses, you know, in, in the Bible, you they almost, you, you think about, oh, that doesn't go hand in hand, and I know when I was doing my notes, I, it, it stopped me. but Quite honestly, curses in the Bible are a very real thing. There were curses, there were plagues, there were obviously the opposite, there were blessings. There are three types of curses, uh, according to Wikipedia. Uh, One is a generational curse, and that would be simply somebody did something so bad that the curse applied beyond them to, uh, to their descendants. Number two is a caste curse, which is, you know, the one initiated by possibly a a witch or a, a witch doctor or some type of something that you you were at a place you weren't supposed to be in something was cast upon you and third would be an earned curse, which I thought was a very weird terminology, but it would I, I guess in my best explanation would be something where you knew better, but you put yourself in this situation to to do something and therefore this curse was bestowed upon you and you earned it. Uh, In the religions of Christianity, God has often blessed or cursed people, tribes, entire regions or areas. And I think the most notable curses of the Bible would be the plagues cast upon Egypt back in the book of Exodus. Of course, the first of those 10 was water to blood. The second was it rained frogs. The third was gnats and lice uh, afflicting the people and animals. Fourth was the surge of flies that came in. Five sick cattle, which obviously would affect by all those before them. Uh, why we might have sick cattle. Six the boils that broke out on the skins of all the people of Egypt. Seven hail. Uh, you know, obviously we have hail today, but from what I understand, you know, hail the size of softballs or bowling balls. And then, as as Bill and I were talking, you know, hail in Egypt. I don't know if that would have been a a, a real common thing at that time frame.
1: I mean, I could be wrong, but I mean, I'm not familiar with Egyptian weather either, so.
0: You know, we have eight, the, the plagues of locusts that took out the, the crops in the field and, and, of course, affected all the feed that they would have for their cattle and livestock. Then we had number nine, darkness, which we would account more for like an eclipse uh, of the sun, you know, but casting darkness upon the earth for many days. And then ten, the last part is the death of the firstborn of all the houses of Egypt. So it's really not that hard to believe uh, the curses of the Bible. However, when you put those words together, sometimes it does kind of take us back. So I decided I was just going to touch upon that as our headline. All right. We hope that you have enjoyed yet another podcast. Whether you call him the Wandering Jew, Cartophilus, or the Count of St. Germain, he seems to have many, many names. And uh, as Bill has brought out, maybe keep your eye open. (laughs) You may have even rubbed shoulders with St. Germain in some way or saw him on the big screen. Regardless, thanks for listening, folks.
1: So, what if we just call it the Count of St. Germain? I'm fine with that. And then the Wondering Jew is part of that story. Which, to be fair, if I had known that was the route we were going to go... I would have done more research on Count of Saint Germain instead of just the Wandering Jew. But we can sometimes do that bites us in the butt. We we can kind of split the difference. I did my part. and You did your part. and You went a different route. There's a lot more to the Saint Germain story, and if you have more on that, mm-hmm. then we can kind of fill in the gaps. So, that being said, um, and and okay, hang on a minute. My notes got I rearranged them a little bit last night, and I think I got them slightly out of order. It happens. Okay. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio.
0: I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for one, putting up with me (laughs) and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will.
1: And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.